Good morning. We're going to be uh, reading John 21 this morning, which is the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he raised from the dead. John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, Oh, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet all the disciples did not know who, that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the other side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord Jesus. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is your word. And so many things in this passage remind us of the things we read earlier in the book of John. We thank you for how our Lord is so uh, personable and he seeks us out and, and comes after us and uh, encourages us. He doesn't leave us hanging there. We look forward to what you will say to us this morning and pray that we would have ears to hear and hearts to obey. We pray that you would fill Tom with your spirit and that uh, he would give us the message you have for us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. If we as, as followers of Jesus Christ want to have the same emphasis that he has, if we want to major on the things that that he considers foundational, then we have to especially pay close attention when he repeats himself. And this final living parable in the in the last chapter of John's Gospel is Jesus repeating himself. With just a few differences, this is the same essential miracle with the same essential lesson that Jesus set before his disciples in Luke chapter 5 when he first called them to be his disciples. Here in John 21, these men, all professional fishermen, had spent the entire night fishing and had caught not one thing. It was still 
the wee hours of the night, the early morning, before the, the light of dawn had really taken hold. So when a man yelled at these fishermen from the shore a hundred yards away, telling them to cast their net on the other side of the boat, they couldn't see who it was that was yelling at them. But they did what he told them to do anyway. And as soon as they dropped their net on the starboard side of the boat, the net filled up very quickly with so many big fish that they weren't able to haul the net into the boat. They realized they were going to have to drag that net the length of a modern-day football field to get to the shore so that they could get their feet on the sand and then anchored so they, they could then pull that net and all those fish up onto the ground. But the instant that the net filled with fish and started to pull the boat down, listing on the starboard side, John, the apostle who writes this gospel, knew exactly what was going on. And he simply said, it is the Lord. James and John and Peter and probably Peter's brother Andrew had seen this before, three years earlier. Jesus was not ambiguous about the point of the parable when he first called his disciples. He told them that he was going to make them fishers of men. And so whatever had just happened with the fishing, they were supposed to learn something from it about being fishers of men. So what was the central point of this living parable that Jesus sets before his disciples at this very strategic point between the resurrection and the ascension, very soon before Jesus returned to his Father and passed the mantle to, to these very men to carry on his work on earth. I believe the essential point is this. God has called all of his people to be fishers of men, but there's only one catcher of men. Or to swap biblical metaphors for just a moment, God sends many pickers out into His harvest to gather the harvest of redeemed men and women and children. But there is only one Redeemer of human beings. There is only one Lord of the harvest. Or to put it as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 3.7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And we touched on this same principle last week briefly. And one dear brother came up to me afterward and he said it was very freeing for him to realize that his assignment from God is not to make anyone believe in Jesus. See, God has absolutely no interest in our powers of persuasion. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2? He said, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or persuasive words of wisdom. He said, I came knowing one thing. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Certainly, we seek to persuade men, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We urge men on behalf of, of Christ, be reconciled to God. But as we do so, we know full well that we do not have the power to persuade anybody to believe in Jesus. That has to come from the Holy Spirit. 
It's God's work alone. See, we're just instruments in the hands of the Lord of the harvest. And and that truly is very freeing. (laughs) Yesterday, when I was talking to a room, about 40 people, a bunch of them Mormons, and I was looking out there and I saw a few heads nodding and smiling and some of them scowling. When I was talking about sin and the fact that we all deserve eternal condemnation, And that there's only one solution. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. And the scowls got, some of the scowls got more intense. But my task was not to persuade anybody in that room. My task was to present and proclaim Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has to take it from there. And He does. He does. Only God is sovereign over the heart of any human being and He has no intention of sharing that seat with any of us. The greatest orator, the most Bible-saturated preacher, the most skillful debater, the best-armed apologist, and the inarticulate high school student who just trusted in Jesus a week ago are all in the very same place when it comes to their ability to save lost souls. They are all utterly without any power at all to turn the heart of even one single human being to faith in Christ. The most tried and true methods, which we hear a lot about these days, the biggest outreach budget, the best gospel tract or booklet, the most seeker-friendly music, even the most compelling personal testimony, all end up in the very same place, utterly without any power to turn the heart of even one single human being to faith in Jesus Christ. Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake at night pointlessly. John 15 verses 4 and 5, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Many are called to be fishers of men, but there's only one catcher of men. And in this final fishing lesson, Jesus was making sure that his disciples knew that because they would need it. Another lesson from this passage is that his fishermen should expect big catches. That same passage in John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, we, t- we tend to expect small results when we proclaim Christ to other people because we think the size and the quality of the catch is all about the ability of the fishermen. And that causes us to woefully underestimate the miraculous things that God intends to do through the wretched and weak likes of people like, like you and me. 
When our expectations stop being about us and start being about Him, our prayers will be much bigger and our nets will be much fuller. I want to talk about that for a minute. What makes nets full and why they sometimes are empty. The third lesson that I find in this passage is one that I didn't actually expect when I started digging into it. And it goes back, I believe, again to Jesus' words to his disciples in John 15 when he said, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. You notice he doesn't say, apart from me you will accomplish less. If you've ever done any net fishing in a reasonably stocked body of water, you know it's really pretty hard to catch absolutely nothing. A lot of water passes through that net, and it and it's almost impossible that there's not some kind of sea life, water life in that in that water that's passing through that net. It's not like fishing with a line at all. And these guys were professional fishermen who had fished this very lake countless times. They knew the best places on the lake and the best place, the best times to be in those places. But twice. Once at the beginning of their experience with Jesus, and now yet again, they had caught absolutely nothing after net fishing all night. (laughs) And twice, after following Jesus' very simple directions, their nets were instantly filled to overflow. And by the way, it can't be about the methodology because in Luke, he told them, go to the deep part of the lake and drop your nets there. And in John, he said, throw them over the starboard side. It's not the method. It's the master. Couldn't Jesus have made the point sufficiently if he had, you know, just kindly let them catch a few normal batches of fish during the night as they were casting their nets and dragging them around? Wouldn't wouldn't that have been... You know, a nice thing to do. Well, that, it, it, if he had then followed that up with this giant, giant haul that he gave them, that would have made an impression. But this made a bigger impression. I believe there's a really important lesson here. Beloved, empty nets are every bit as necessary as full ones. God's withholding is every bit as purposeful as his providing. God's withholding is every bit as purposeful in our lives as His providing. God will graciously withhold fruitfulness in our lives and ministries at times in order to teach us godly dependence. To make sure that we have the distinction between the source and the instruments very clearly in mind. What better way to teach us that we're not the ones who cause fruit than for the real cause to withhold fruit completely until we get the message and actually start depending on Him. This applies in all aspects of life for the children of God. I was was talking to my sweet wife last night about a particular very painful period of time in the history of VentureNet, the IT company that I worked for for almost 16 years. For months that then stretched into more than a year, nothing that we did seemed to move the business forward. Tried and true true marketing practices, diligent adherence to our biblically derived core values, 
a team of really, really good people providing outstanding service to our clients, and we were still going in the wrong direction. We were in the red, and it was getting redder. Then we lost a really good client. And then we lost another one. So we all took substantial pay cuts from the top down, and then very painfully we laid some really good people off. And we were still in the red. And then without any identifiable change in the, in the services that we were providing or how we were providing them, things started to move the other direction. And in a fairly short period of time, we were in the black. We got a good client, and then we got another, and then we started getting some unusually high-dollar projects and ongoing maintenance agreements, and we were in the black. We were profitable, and, and then we figured out what actually had changed. My wife and the wives of the two other owners of the company, women that some of you know, Carrie Beatty and Chris Klaus, had been praying and fasting every Monday for months, asking God to do what we men clearly were not getting done by our own devices. And then it all made perfect sense why things had been going so badly from our perspective before those Monday prayer and fasting sessions had started. God was bent on teaching us dependence. And if you're a Christian in in the business world, Guess what? You still live by God's terms. He frustrated all our best tried and true methodology. He frustrated our full court press until somebody in our midst got the message and started earnestly depending on him. This applies in all parts of life for the children of God, but it makes perfect sense that it especially applies when it comes to reaping a harvest of souls for the kingdom of God. When we drift away from deliberate dependence on God alone, we should not be surprised to find that our nets are empty even when we're using the same methods that we were using the last time those nets were reasonably full. And what makes our dependence deliberate? That's the big question. What is it that constitutes intentional, deliberate dependence on God? (laughs) I think the unavoidable answer is Fervent, diligent, continual prayer combined with unreserved obedience. When Jesus said, cast your nets on the other side of the boat, they did. At that point, they weren't weren't even sure who he was. But they had done what he said, and guess what happened? Now, it's not just obedience. It's It is deliberate, intentional dependence. In Acts chapter 4, many of the followers of Jesus were gathered together in Jerusalem. And they were thanking God for His mighty mighty rescue of Peter and John from the hands of the Jewish authorities. At the end of that passage, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the Word of God with boldness and the church was multiplied. But what happened just before they were filled with the Spirit and granted a bold witness for Jesus Christ? Two things. They praised God for His sovereignty and power over the hearts of men, including very powerful men, and then they asked God for boldness to proclaim Christ. And God said yes. 
They praised and they prayed. If you look up the word prayer in Unger's Bible Dictionary, which I did about 40 years ago, you'll find what I found. This is the first part of the definition. Prayer is the expression of man's dependence on God for all things. Prayer is the expression of man's dependence on God for all things. What habitual reverence is to praise, the habitual sense of dependence is to prayer. I think that's pretty good. It's not, that statement is not, you know, inspired, but I think it's pretty good. Pretty biblical. I've been pondering this for a while as we've worked through the upper room discourse recently and as we've seen the repeated humbling of the disciples by Jesus, especially the repeated humbling of Peter, who seems to be the poster child for everything that God, that Jesus is working on with the disciples. I've been struck over and over by the realization that Jesus will not leave self-reliant disciples in their self-reliance. It's not to say he will never use a Christian who's struggling with pride and self-dependence. It's to say that he will not leave that Christian alone. He'll be bugging him and bugging him and working on him. He is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he's relentless. He's relentless. And and beloved, self-reliance dies hard. God is not limited by us in any way. He doesn't need fishermen or nets to catch fish. While the disciples were still working on dragging their net full of 153 really big fish to the shore, Jesus was already cooking the fish that he was about to have for breakfast. And he could have put a wall of fish on the beach if he had wanted to with nothing but a spoken word. Anybody doubt that? God doesn't need agents. He's God but He chooses to use us as His agents. He's been doing that ever since Genesis 1. And He may very deliberately limit what He does through us until we start depending on Him in earnest. Now pay careful attention to that. He may very deliberately limit what He chooses, wills to accomplish through us until we start depending on Him in earnest. Who's in charge? Who's in control in that, in that situation? He is. How is earnest dependence expressed? Prayer is a huge part of it. Now, think about this for a minute. We so easily turn our focus manward instead of Godward, and when we do, we end up with really messed up ideas about how prayer works. We say things like, our faithful and diligent prayers unlock the power of God. And then we pray prayers for things that we know He wants to do through us. And the reason we know that He wants to do them through us is because He told us that He does. And so we pray those prayers and then we don't see Him doing what what He told us He wanted to do through us. So we say other things like, our weak, undisciplined prayers are limiting God. So we pray longer and harder and we use more words and we wonder why God still isn't doing what we ask. But isn't that approach to prayer just as us dependent as if we weren't praying at all? When we have that attitude toward prayer, aren't we putting faith in prayer instead of putting faith in the God to whom our prayers are presented? 
Beloved, think about this. What if God's purpose for our prayers is far more relational than it is pragmatic? What if God's purpose for our prayers is much more about cementing our constant connection with Him than it is about getting things done? What if His purpose in our prayers for the lost is not about how many souls He's going to use us to save today, but how dependent we are on the Savior of souls? What if His greatest goal for using you instead of somebody else to save a lost soul is all about how awestruck He wants to make you toward Him for using the miserable likes of you to pull somebody out of the darkness into the light? Our prayers don't unlock God's power. Our prayers, our failure to pray does not limit God's power. God has been doing miraculous, incredible things throughout the history of humankind, even when His people weren't paying any attention at all. Our prayers humble our hearts in utter dependence on God, so at times He will very intentionally withhold His miraculous work through us in order to humble us so that we will depend on Him more utterly. Now, who is in control when it works that way? He is. He always was. Empty nets, beloved, are every bit as purposeful as full nets in the hands of God. And that means we need to pay attention when our nets are empty. Just as we need to praise our great God when they are full. I believe there's one more critical lesson here that's bound very closely up with the ones that we've already considered. And that is that God's fishermen are all unworthy of the assignment from start to finish. And I think this is huge. I think this explains a whole lot of what went on between Jesus and Peter especially. The first time Jesus taught this fishing class to his disciples back in Luke chapter 5, the only words exchanged in that passage were between Jesus and Peter. There were other disciples in the mix, but all the words were between those two men. When Jesus told Peter, who was still called Simon at that point, to head to the deep waters of the lake and to let down his nets, Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and we caught nothing, but okay, I'll do as you say and let down the nets. So Simon, who was in his boat, probably with his brother Andrew, reluctantly did what Jesus said to do, and when he did... Their nets quickly became so overloaded with fish that the nets began to break. So they signaled to James and John who were in another boat. James and John, by the way, were business partners with Peter and Andrew in their fishing venture. And when James and John brought their boat alongside Peter's, they filled both of the, vo- of the boats with so many fish that both of them started to sink. At that point, Peter fell down at Jesus' feet, and you know what he said? He said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, Lord. And what did Jesus say to him? Did he say, Peter, stop being so melodramatic? No. Did he say, Peter, do not fear. You're not half as unworthy as you think you are. You're actually pretty great. You and your friends here are going to be the best Fishers of men anyone could ask for. No, he didn't say anything like that at all. 
Because that's not how this whole fishers of men thing works. He simply said, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. See, Peter's response was the right response. The way God catches the souls of men through the likes of us is all because of Him. And, and he, one of the ways that he makes that really clear to us is he shows us what's true of us. Here in the last chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus repeats the lesson, and once again, Peter is the poster child for the lesson. And this is, guys, this is the same Peter who only days earlier, at the very moment that his third and most forceful denial of Jesus was leaving his lips, realized that Jesus was looking straight at him while the men who were holding Jesus in bonds were mocking and beating him. In that terrible moment, about the same time of day as this, on that Good Friday morning, Peter had wept bitterly as he remembered Jesus' prophecy of his denial. I don't for a minute believe that the look in Jesus' eyes said, Peter, I am so disappointed in you. I expected so much more of you. You know what I believe that look said? Peter, I'm doing this for you. For all of you. It had only been a matter of days since Peter had denied Jesus with curses to protect his own hide. This was still the same Peter who had fallen down at the feet of Jesus three years earlier, crying out, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter needed to know that about himself then, and he needed to know that about himself now, and he would need to know that about himself every day for the rest of his life that he spent in the service of his Lord, just like you and I need to know that every day of the rest of our lives when we actually start to embrace that unavoidable reality about us, our lives of service to God become way more joyful. How many of you put on more clothes to go swimming than you had on just before you decided to go swimming? Peter spent the whole night stripped down so he could work his fishing nets unencumbered. But as soon as he heard John say the words, It is the Lord... (laughs) Peter put on his outer cloak and threw himself into the sea. If you look at the use of that word, threw himself, in Revelation 6, it speaks of unripened figs being hurled from a tree as that tree is being violently shaken by a powerful wind. Peter put on his cloak and hurled himself into the sea. The very second he realized that it was Jesus there on the shore, it was as if Peter was so fixated on Christ and on getting to Christ that he forgot that there was a hundred yards of water between him and the Lord. I wonder if Peter thought he could just run to the shore instead of swimming. I have to wonder what the other disciples had to say to each other about Peter on that boat as they proceeded slowly toward the shore, dragging their net overfilled with really large fish for the entire length of a modern football field. Beloved, no man adores his Savior like the man who knows the depths of his own wretchedness. It was from just such a man that God gave his church the great hymn, Amazing Grace. 
That man was John Newton, a former slave trader who never thought very much of himself, but whose thoughts of Jesus had become his one great obsession. Have you ever been a little bit surprised by some of the names listed in the so-called Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11? (laughs) Men like Barak, who refused to go into battle unless Deborah went with him. I have a Deborah like that. After she got her brown belt in Taekwondo years ago, I started calling her Conan the Librarian. I always make it a point to take her with me when I go to the rough parts of town. Sometime go check out the stories behind the other people listed in Hebrews 11. All of them, including Moses and Abraham and Noah. See, it won't be the people that end up impressing you. It will be the God who used such weak and damaged vessels to accomplish such great and mighty things. My brother Greg Watson pointed me a while back to a very powerful message from John Piper that traces the life of a faithful British preacher from the late 18th and early 19th centuries named Charles Simeon. That's a good message to listen to. The distinctive trait in the heart and life of Simeon to which Piper most draws attention is the great poverty of his own view of himself in light of the magnitude of his view of Jesus. Piper says Simeon's adoration only grew in the freshly plowed soil of humiliation for his own sin. So he actually labored to know his true sinfulness and his remaining ongoing corruption as a Christian all the way to the end of his earthly life and ministry. But that article makes it equally clear that this very well-practiced awareness of his own wretchedness never, ever stood alone. It was always overwhelmed by his awareness of Christ and of his indescribable gift. After he had been a Christian for 40 years, Simeon wrote, There are but two objects that I have ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought that they should be viewed together, just as Aaron confessed all the sins of Israel while he put them on the head of the scapegoat. The disease did not keep him from applying to the remedy, nor did the remedy keep him from feeling the disease. By this I seek to be not only humble and thankful, but humbled in thankfulness before my God and Savior continually. It's exceedingly important for us to make sure we see how those parts fit together. Our adoration of Christ, our constant apprehension of His incomparable worthiness compels us to hate our sin and to assess ourselves as unworthy of even the least affection or attention. We lose ourselves in Christ. I urge you to go back and read chapters 13 to 16 of John and take note of how many times Jesus humbles and even shames the men that he chose to be his ambassadors on earth after his departure. The goal of those repeated humiliations was not to cure them forever of doing and saying things that would prove their unworthiness. If that was the goal, he failed. 
The goal of those repeated humiliations was to teach his disciples to own their unworthiness in the light of his perfect and absolute worthiness. Have you ever taken a weak flashlight and pointed it at the wall and then taken, while it's still on, pointed a really bright flashlight at the same spot? You'd never know the weak light was there. God is not looking for disciples whose consistency of godly thoughts and words and behavior qualifies them to act as his ambassadors. He's looking for disciples who know full well that their only qualification to act as his ambassadors is Christ in them. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. Different words, same point. The prophet Isaiah was not ready to be God's mouthpiece until his beholding of the glory of Christ on his throne had driven him to say, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. As soon as Isaiah made that confession, God sent an angel to touch his lips with a burning coal and he declared Isaiah's sins to be forgiven He didn't say, oh, Isaiah, you're not really that bad. He said, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And then Isaiah was ready to be used by God. When God said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah immediately responded, here I am, Lord, send me. Beloved, God uses fishermen who have been made keenly aware of their own unworthiness because they are standing in the astonishing light of Christ's perfect worthiness. When we figure out that that's our only qualification to act as agents of God, then we're ready to be made useful. One last quick thing. When Jack Deere's new autobiographical book, Even in Our Darkness, came out a couple of weeks ago, I knew Ron would have it on the display rack with the new releases, so I went in and I grabbed it and I read it in what for me was record time because I could barely put it down. Jackie had been one of my favorite profs when I was in my last couple of years at Dallas Seminary. And God had powerfully used Jackie in my life at a critical juncture. He'd used him in a way that it actually affects you guys. I had met with Jackie in his office not long after I graduated seminary to get his counsel about how to proceed after a failed church planting collaboration. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Tom, if God intends for you to teach and preach his word, you won't be able not to. If you have to be paid to do it, you shouldn't be doing it. He said, just be faithful where God has put you And he'll show you if you're supposed to be a teacher who's paid for it. That wise, godly counsel stuck with me. I found myself teaching and preaching all kinds of age groups and all kinds of scenarios over very many years. And then suddenly, I found myself here. And when the elders asked me to consider this role, I looked back at what that man had said to me and what God had done. And it was pretty clear, along with the, the excellent contribution that many of you made to, to my, my whole set of thinking at that point. I say all that to say this. God used that man powerfully in my life. 
But when I read his book a couple of weeks ago, I discovered that the man through whom God had given me that counsel had even then been in the midst of a spiritual wrestling match with God that would last for decades, and it was a wrestling match he had to lose. On one of the final pages of the book, he wrote these words. He said, in church, I was told that as a Christian, my good deeds would outweigh my bad. And then I preached versions of that same message, but the evidence always contradicted the promise. My life stayed messy. And then he got to the punchline. He said, I never stopped needing God's mercy. I never stopped needing God's mercy. See, God was not going to relent until Jackie knew that to the core of his being. Peter wasn't ready even to begin to be useful to Jesus until having beheld the creation controlling power of his Savior, he fell to his face at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, just days after Peter had had that same reality about himself pounded into him, just days after the greatest spiritual failure of his entire earthly life, Peter was so overcome with affection for the one who had died to save him that at least in that moment he forgot himself, he forgot the net full of fish, and it appears he even forgot the water that stood between him and his Savior. All he could think of was getting to where Jesus was. Beloved, that's what God wants to do in the heart of every one of us, that He is saved to be a fisher of men. When His marvelous and unending mercy toward us, who need mercy every moment of every day, causes us to lose ourselves in Him, that's when we're ready to watch God do some serious fishing. Dear Father, it is a miracle off the charts that you would use the likes of us to save even one single soul. It's a miracle that you would call us to be your sons and daughters, that you would redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for yourself a people for your own possession, zealous for good deeds by sending your Son to die in our place. Father, we we cry out to you, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. But Father, you have forgiven us. You have saved us. You have paid a penalty we could never pay so that we can be redeemed ambassadors of the living God. Thank you, Father. Don't ever let us forget the magnitude of that gift. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.